Funding for the Think Podcast comes from Trinity University, where the spirit of inquiry can inspire a resilient and diverse community of lifelong learners to answer questions and question answers. More at trinity.edu slash values. The writer Charles Dickens was a white Englishman, best known for writing complicated, page-turning stories and journalism that helped illuminate social injustices of the 19th century. The musician Prince was a black American whose life straddled the 20th and 21st centuries, who was so musically gifted that he played literally every instrument on his first album and composed mega-hits not only for himself but for musicians like Sinead O'Connor, The Bangles, Tom Jones, and Shaka Khan. So we get that they were both legendary artists. But if you look at their backgrounds, their personal struggles, the way each was driven to work, you realize that what they had in common might tell us a lot about a certain very rare sort of creative gift. From KERA in Dallas, this is Think. I'm Chris Boyd. Nick Hornby is an Emmy Award-winning and Oscar-nominated writer himself. His novels include About a Boy, High Fidelity, and Just Like You. His newest book, a work of nonfiction, considers the qualities and flaws shared by these two legends. It's called Dickens and Prince, a particular kind of genius. Nick, welcome to Think. Thank you for having me. I was drawn to read this book in part because, on the face of it, Charles Dickens and Prince seem to have nothing in common besides being quite famous for being exceptionally good at what they did. And we should say that at the outset, you are not doing any sort of like uncanny connections in the style of those Abraham Lincoln, John F. Kennedy coincidences. So what was it about the release of this commemorative box set of Prince songs that got you started down this road? Well, um, when this Sign of the Times box came out in, in 2020, um, it contained 63 extra songs. And there were, uh, I think, 18 or 19 on the original album. Um, so uh, 63 extra is, um, is kind of weird. I mean, <laughs> to put it in context, it's more than the Eagles recorded in the whole of the 1970s. And this was extra for one album that Prince made uh, in, in the 80s. Um, but when I was reading about this box set, uh, it was clear that Prince had been working on more than one record at once. Um, that he had different characters and different styles and eventually it got reduced down to this one album. But I, it, it suddenly clicked with me that Dickens used to write more than one novel at the same time. And, and it just amused me at first. But then I started thinking more deeply about it and, and realising that they had lots of things in common. So Dickens was still writing and publishing um, in serial form uh, what the Pickwick Papers when he started publishing and writing uh, Oliver Twist? Uh, yes, and Oliver Twist and Nicholas Nickleby, I think, as well. Um, so, yeah, he, he would be finishing one and, and starting the other. Um, I mean, it's a bit like um, some TV producer, I suppose, who's got two, two series on the go, but Dickens was the only creative involved. And to me, it's just staggering um, as a writer that you could work on two books at once, keep two sets of characters separate, uh, these very ornate, complicated plots separate, and, and just bash it out. 
The first Dickens novel you read, I think, was Bleak House. Many people start with Great Expectations as like an assignment. Let's just hear a little bit of Great Expectations. I found out for certain that this bleak place, overgrown with nettles, was the churchyard, and that Philip Pirrip, late of this parish, and also Georgiana, wife of the above, were dead and buried, and that Alexander, Bartholomew, Abraham, Tobias and Roger, infant children of the aforesaid, were also dead and buried, and that the dark, flat wilderness beyond the churchyard, intersected with dikes and mounds and gates, with scattered cattle feeding on it, was the marshes, and that the low, leaden line beyond was the river, and that the distant, savage lair from which the wind was rushing was the sea, and that the small bundle of shivers growing afraid of it all and beginning to cry was Pip. You say, Nick, that you're grateful you didn't have to read Dickens until you were at university. Why is that? Well, um, those books are complicated. The sentences are long and they're, they're a forbidding length as well. Um, but most of all, it, it wasn't until um, I started reading in my 20s that I realised that he was funny. And um, I think when you're a kid, you really don't know that Dickens is funny. There's nothing funny about reading Dickens when you're 12 or 13. Um, and um, he's kind of a comic genius. And that would have completely passed me by if I'd read him any younger. Did he think of himself as an entertainer? Oh, absolutely he did. I mean, he knew um, who his readership was uh, and that, that they were ordinary people. Um, just about anyone who was literate in the 19th century read Dickens. Um, and when he did his reading tours, uh, he um, inhabited his characters. He, he, he gave apparently very exhausting um, readings where he, he more or less collapsed at the end because um, he came from a, a, the theatre, really. He was inspired by the theatre and he wanted to put on a show when he did these readings. So he was he absolutely had the common touch as a popular entertainer. You heard your first Prince song maybe around the same time you first read Dickens and you did like it, but you didn't necessarily recognize a revolutionary artist in the making, right? No, I think um, I, I Want to Be Your Lover, which was the first song that maybe quite a few of us heard, is, is a great pop song, but it doesn't really indicate what was to come. But then when the album 1999 was released in the early 80s, this song blew you away. It's a young kind of person that believes in making out once, love them and leave them fast. All right, Nick, it is, you know, unquestionably a great song. What was it about that that told you that Prince and the sort of raw eroticism that he embodied in his music, that was not just a gimmick for him? 
No, um, no, and sexuality was incredibly important to Prince throughout his career. Um, sometimes, um, regrettably, I think, um, you can get a bit fed up with it. Uh, but um, Little Red Corvette is so kind of witty and fun and extraordinary fusion as well of a, a kind of rock and roll backbeat with um, contemporary R&B. As you started looking into their backgrounds, you realized both Prince and Charles Dickens were indelibly shaped by, frankly, awful childhoods. I, I want to avoid romanticizing poverty, and certainly that would do a disservice to everything Dickens ever worked for. But is there some reason, do you think, that so many groundbreaking artists seem to have emerged from deprivation? Uh, yeah, I do. I think that um, if you've had that deprivation, then you're desperate to escape. And, um, and that probably energizes you as much as uh, anything else possibly could. And of course, most people don't have their talent um, or their, their fortune, actually. There were, there were various lucky things that happened to them along the way as well. But um, that drive, uh, I think, was so powerful that it, it lasted for their entire careers. I thought it was so interesting that you discovered much more is known about the details of Dickens' early life than Prince's. What was Dickens' upbringing like? Well, um, he, his father had an okay job, but his father was Mr. McCorber, if, if you remember that character from David Copperfield, who um, uh, was very optimistic in his budgeting of family expenses and um, eventually it all caught up with him and he was sent to debtor's prison. Um, and Dickens was forced to leave school and go and work in a particularly grim factory, aged, I think, uh, 12 or 13. Um, and uh, this was something that scarred him for life. And actually, he emerged from that, went back to school, and the family never talked about it again. But his father and um, his family generally were burdens on him financially for all his life. How did the instability of Prince's upbringing create the space for him to become such an astonishing musician? Well, his um, his father was a musician, um, a, a kind of outsider jazz musician. He, he wasn't um, around him that much, I don't think, but, uh, after a certain age. Uh, but his father had a piano, and he was he, he was quite often locked in the room with his with this piano because of bad behaviour. And then when it really all fell apart for him um, domestically, um, which resulted in his mother leaving, his father leaving, and and uh, stepfather too, um, he ended up living in a friend's basement. But this this friend was a bandmate as well, and and it looks like their equipment was kept in this basement. So he, he probably had more access to instruments than most kids would have wanted. <laughs> but um, he used it, obviously, to his advantage. So when he was lonely down in that basement, he would play to comfort himself. That, or, or I don't know, to comfort himself, but he had this incredible curiosity in the music. And that seemed to be something he was born with. Um, from the moment he was a kid, he, he just consumed music whenever he could. 
You know, they both had really early success, I mean, in part because they needed money. Um, this is not so unusual for pop artists, right? Pop music usually comes from very young people. Um, but what set Prince apart was how much of it he created in such quick succession. And I, th I thought of that line reading the book from Hamilton, why do you write like you're running out of time? Prince produced music like he was running out of time. He really did, yeah. Um, I mean, there were seven or eight albums in his 20s, and, and of course one of those was Purple Rain, which logically should have meant he didn't really have to work ever again. Um, such was the size of the success of both the, the album and the movie. Um, so he just carried on being driven, even though he didn't need to be. I mean, you can tell from, from what he produced that it was way beyond any kind of financial imperative. And of course, you can want to be as successful as you want, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean you're going to be. Uh, when you say that Dickens was driven by financial imperative, there are all kinds of people who couldn't have done what he did. At the beginning, Prince wrote exclusively for himself. On his earliest songs, he was the only musician credited. I mean, how many instruments did he play? Um, well, he could play any kind of guitar. Um, he was always the best drummer in the room, even if he had a drummer in the room. Um, uh, and he was a very gifted pianist. I, I think that anything he tried, he, he it worked. It, he worked out how to do it and how to play it, uh, but just completely naturally at home in, in any musical world. Prince, of course, also wrote for other artists throughout his careers and allowed his songs to be recorded by them. Here's just a tiny sample of hits written by Prince that you may not have known were written by Prince. <laughs> It's like he was everywhere at once, Nick Hornby. Um, you note in the book that Prince was eager to be a mentor to other artists before he was maybe even fully accepted as established himself. Yes, he, he was um, uh, particularly driven in that way. I'm quite curious for a young man. that There was a, uh, a woman that he was interested in recording even before um, anyone knew who he was and he got very cross when she went off and um, recorded for somebody else. Um, a lot of it was, um, I think, a method of seduction, possibly. Um, there were endless albums in the 1980s by women uh, singers uh, that didn't really amount to very much. And um, his manager said to him at one time that he could just... Uh, go to bed with them. He didn't have to make a double album with everybody. <laughs> I'm, I'm paraphrasing. 
Um, but but uh, that that's kind of what he ended up doing is is dating people and making records with them. And but it was just more outlets for his songwriting. So Dickens' first literary success came with the Pickwick Papers, but they didn't take off just right away, right? That's right. Um, they were published in serial form. The first two or three didn't do that well. But then he introduced a character called Sam Weller, who became basically a viral hit. Uh, and, and, and the book took off with the introduction of, of Sam Weller. And, um, and Sam Weller was everywhere. There were Sam Weller joke books and Sam Weller um, knockoffs. And uh, Dickens had no control over this, but he became a huge popular success, the, the character himself and then the book. The thing that your book helped me understand that I didn't really appreciate before is that Dickens released his novels serially, and this meant he wasn't writing whole books and then editing them so that they were perfect works and then breaking them up. He was kind of writing as he went along. Oh, he was absolutely. He was he was a magazine writer in that way. I mean, the, these novels were written in parts and they weren't published until after he'd finished. They were published as books after he'd finished the serializations. But he was always up against a frantic deadline of usually two uh, books for serialization. And he was writing them on the hoof. I think one of the most terrifying stories for me of that is The Old Curiosity Shop, which he only wrote because someone else's book that he was um, serializing kind of collapsed. And he thought, oh, right, I've got to write a, a novel on the hoof. And out of a short story, he spun the old curiosity shop month by month. And um, that, that seems like a, a terrifying way of working. But, you know, as, as I said in the book, it's not like the old curiosity shop is one of Dickens' obscure, unread novels. I and mean, that, that book <laughs> survived all that time. And that was its creation. And that's one of the things I'm interested in the book, is, is that they both broke all the rules of how you're supposed to do things, and it didn't matter. Funding for the Think Podcast comes from TCU, where researchers strive to develop sustainable solutions to protect the world's freshwater supply. You can learn more at endeavors.tcu.edu. Yeah, we hear so often about great artists and their perfectionism, but you make the point here that it was really important to the genius of both Dickens and Prince and what they managed to do, that they were actually not perfectionists in the classic sense. Absolutely not, because the, the body of work simply wouldn't have existed for either of them if they'd been perfectionists. And um, I, I think it's interesting when you compare it to uh, the instruction that I know young writers receive in writing schools about sitting on something for a year and, and paring back and cutting back and rewriting and rewriting. And of course that works for some people and it might be the best thing to tell young people, but it's not what either of them did at all. And it's not just that they got that work out there, but the work has lasted. So it's really like they're telling us there's no right way of doing something. Do you think it's just a losing proposition to try and, you know, be an artist for the ages when you're working in a very particular moment? I do. I, I think it's a completely losing proposition. If you ever 
um, have one eye on posterity, which means that you make certain choices about the, the work you're working on at the moment, um, then I think you're doomed. You know, if you never put the name of a television programme in because you're worried about how that will read in 100 years' time. The other thing is that you can't do it, I think, unless you have a popular audience in your own lifetime, that all of these people were huge. Um, you know, Shakespeare, obviously, was extremely popular. Dickens was huge, Prince was huge. So there's this massive fan base to start with, and that's what helps you get through the next 30, 40, 200, 500 years. Let's listen to A Little Purple Rain, which of course was written with the film in mind. Nick, is, is, was Purple Rain a good movie? It's so bad. Um, I don't think <laughs> anyone's tried to watch it since it came out, but um, it's, it's pretty creaky. But the music associated with the film is brilliant. The, the music's incredible. Um, and he had to write so much music for that film as well because he was, he was writing the music for The Time, who, if you remember, played... Um, Prince's opponents or the kids' opponents in the film—that's who he was competing with—and and he wrote the the, the um, solo music for uh, Apollonia, the, the young woman. Um, and it was a—he was—he had an awful lot to control in terms of the music of that film. And and once again, you think I don't know how he managed it. He was making three or four albums at once then. I'll confess, Nick, I just wanted to play When Doves Cry because I like that song so much. It also comes from the movie and the album Purple Rain. Um, but I remember when that song came out, came out thinking it sounded unlike anything I'd heard before. That's right. Um, it does sound unlike anything most of us have heard before. For a start, it's got no bass on it, which mm. is uh, very unusual for, uh, well, certainly... An R&B song at the time. I guess you, it, it's not an R&B song. It, it's something you can't quite categorise. And I think um, Prince was having a row. I think it was with Morris Day, and and he drove him around and played him "When Doves Cry" while they were arguing. I think about the whole process of making the movie and Prince's control of Morris Day's band. Morris Day slammed the door and shouted, 
play me something funky next time. And uh, Morris Day tells the story self-deprecatingly, I think, but <laughs> it, it, it's actually not um, as, as funky as, as some of Prince's later work, but it is this dazzling new breed of pop song. Both of these artists, Prince and Charles Dickens, struggled throughout their careers with ownership of their own work, with imitators. I mean, you alluded to this already, but as soon as he, Dickens got popular, he had people cranking out not just plays that guessed the ending, but sound-alike titles. So he writes Nicholas Nickleby and Oliver Twist. On newsstands, there are titles like Nicholas Nickleberry and Oliver Twist, uh, you know, hoping that people wouldn't know the difference. Dickens was not able to do anything about those kinds of copyright violations? No. Um, and I don't think you can now, actually. If you look at, um, uh, if you go on, say, Amazon and look up um, there are uh, Harry Potter knockoffs. There's all sorts of Harry Potheads and parodies <laughs> and, and things that try and sound like him. It, it's always been the case in, in publishing that people think the magic is somehow in the style of the name or, or the name of a character, and it never is. It's always in the genius of the person who made it in the first place. People may forget this, Nick, or be too young to remember the whole name change thing with Prince. That was that was in reaction to his battles with Warner Brothers, right? Absolutely. Um, he he signed a very big contract with Warner Brothers, which later he realized was never going to pay him the money he thought he was going to get. Um, it was so based on impossible sales and things that um, he, he insisted on the figure... Uh, that appeared in the contracts, but he, he, it took him a while to realise that he couldn't actually make that money. And um, he got very angry about that. He also got very angry that um, they wouldn't release an album whenever he felt like making one, and he felt like making one all the time. And the, the record company was saying, well, look, you know, we can't release four albums a year because... Uh, we need to be able to promote them and you need to be able to tour them and, and it's better if there's a gap. And, and that's how he ended up with Slave written on his cheek, which um, was very unfortunate then and would have got him into even worse trouble now, I think. Um, what do they have in common in terms of their relationship challenges? Well... Um, the, the, the weird connection I had was that they seemed to um, almost sentimentalise women. Um, Dickens had this experience that his very young sister-in-law died um, when he was still a young man as well. And it devastated him much more than the deaths of anybody else in his life. And, and you, I think you'd probably have to... Um, he probably would have had to have had analysis for underst to understand why this particular young woman affected him so much. But he kept trying to repeat that pattern and he sentimentalised um, characters in his book. The young women are never very good, actually. He, was, he made fantastic older women, uh, but, but the young women were quite insipid uh, and, um, and uninteresting. Uh, and it, it seemed to be because he had this rather unimaginative idea about what, what young women were like. Prince, as we said before, made these well, scores of terrible albums with, with young women singers, which he didn't have to do either. 
Uh, Prince was with us until 2016, and the world and its understanding of sort of complex um, sexual identities had come a long way by then. But it, it's curious to think about how Prince might talk about himself, identify if he were still around in 2022. It is interesting, and, and looking back on it, it, he seemed very prophetic in, in some ways. I mean, he he... he very much played with the idea of gender. There's no evidence to suggest he was anything other than heterosexual, but um, he was loved by everybody of every sexuality because he excluded nobody. And um, uh, he, he sung about sex in a very interesting kind of non-judgmental, inclusive way. Prince also, anybody who ever saw him said he put on an astonishing show. Um, he often, like, would do a full traditional concert, and then after hours he would drop in and play another two, three hours? That was the routine on his tours, that um, his management or his road manager would go out and find a venue that he could play in after he'd finished the show. Um, and uh, so between the hours of, say, 2 a.m. and 5 a.m., he'd quite often play another show, which allowed him to be looser. He played a lot of cover versions at those shows, and they didn't have to have the same coordination with lighting and, and so on. He, he, he could uh, do things on the hoof much easier. But, yeah, um, he'd play from 9 till 11 and then 2 till 5, say. Uh, <laughs> Who, who does that? Who plays a show after they've played a show? I, maybe that part of me is just envious of all the people who got to see those shows, and I never did. But um, I will say that you can read that both ways. You can read it as someone who is so um, driven to perform, so loves what they do that they can't get enough. You can also read it as somebody who's got such an empty hole that they perform a concert, perform a stadium full of people, and then need three more hours of people loving them? Yes. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's he, he didn't seem to have that much of a, a personal life, um, Prince. Um, and as far as one can tell, he was lonely for long patches of time, but a loneliness that, that he'd chosen for himself. Uh, but I, I, I do think that he just had the need to make music as many hours of the day as he possibly could. Nick, how did the style and the content of Charles Dickens' novels change over the course of his life? I think they became um, more complicated. Um, I think that our mutual friend is a lot less fun than David Copperfield, and I, I wouldn't recommend readers to start with the end of his um, career. So uh, he, he became, in a way, more earnest. He, he, his need for social justice kind of consumed him as well. Um, they've still got jokes in all these things and fantastic characters, but um, that, that sort of the joy of the first few books um, tends to uh, dissipate. So I, I guess you can ask a similar question about Dickens being driven to write. On the one hand, he cared as much as ever about social justice. 
Um, was he also trying to sort of get his fill of audiences loving his work? I think perhaps um, less driven by that than, than Prince was. Uh, he, Dickens did so much that wasn't his, his novels. I mean, he, he edited several magazines, he wrote plays. Um, if you look at the volumes of letters, there, there are 12 volumes of letters at the moment. We haven't found them all and a lot were destroyed. Uh, but the 12 volumes of letters are about the same size as um, his collected works of, of fiction. Um, so it's just very hard to imagine, again, how he found the time to do all this. But a lot of it was work and um, and, and campaigning and um, helping other people. He was uh, he was quite generous to some other writers as well. Um, but it was just work, 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 consumed by work. They're both still very much alive as contributors to our culture, people whose work is being responded to even now. Um, they're both still household words. Dickens pretty clearly knew he was dying. Prince almost certainly did not. How much do you sense that either one of them thought about how they and their work might be remembered? Uh, I, I don't think that either of them thought about it very much, is my suspicion. Um, I think that they, they acted as though they were immortal. There was no wind-down time. Um, they, they both had scares before they died and, you know, a few weeks before they died. Dickens was quite often ill, um, but uh, I, I think that they, they just wanted to focus on the moment and not think about what would happen afterwards. But we have all this work from Prince. Um, there, there, there's enough uh, new albums for decades to come. Has this comparative study taught you anything about your work? I think what they do is make is give me courage, actually, um, and I, I hope that they give everybody courage. Any any young artist who's starting out who doubts themselves, who thinks that um, they're not ready to do something, um, I think that the instruction they they give us is is to work, work with courage, work with joy, get it done, get it out, move on, do something else. And I find that enormously comforting. I'm always itching to get on with the next thing. I'm not a perfectionist. Nick Hornby is an award-winning and Oscar-nominated writer. His novels include About a Boy, High Fidelity, and Just Like You. His newest book is a work of nonfiction and is titled Dickens and Prince, A Particular Kind of Genius. Nick, thanks very much for making time to talk with us. It was a great pleasure. Thank you, Chris. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram, and you can subscribe to our podcast free where you get your podcasts, or you can listen to it at our website, think.kera.org. Once again, I'm Chris Boyd. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.